Contemplation of the body in the sutra, it actually begins with meditation instruction on how to how to learn to develop concentration and mindful awareness using breath meditation. And that's what that's what the first part of the contemplation of the body is about. The, the other parts of it though are uh, examining the body in terms of the four elements and in terms of the 32 parts of the body and then in terms of the impermanence of the body through the way that it decomposes you know, in a, a graveyard meditation. So in that particular practice that they're describing there, um, it's not just recognizing that the body is the source of our sensory experience, which of course is something that does come from that practice, but it's also uh, examining the body in terms of overcoming our attachment to the body, seeing the body as being uh, uh, impermanent, made up of parts, uh, examining that although we may think the body is beautiful and wonderful, if we examine the parts individually, that we find that they are un unattractive by themselves. And that also recognizing that this body is subject to, to decay, so it's not having attachment. Uh, a large part of that contemplation is about not having uh, mistaken views and attachment towards the body. So it's... it's uh, Certainly, we would say that whole contemplation is about the the form aggregate as the body. And then the the follow question is that okay, should, so should we should we practice the the four application of methods in our meditation, or if yes, how and if not, why not? Well. The first part of the mindfulness of the body, which is learning how to meditate, that's very important. If you have attachment to the body, then it would probably be useful for you to do the meditation on the 32 parts of the body and the uh, five elements or four elements and the decomposition of the body. 
But if you don't feel that you have a lot of attachment to the body and a lot of belief that you that I am my body and that sort of thing, then the most important way to apply that contemplation is through the rec is, is through the examination of feelings in the body. You should do these four applications of mindfulness as much as possible in every part of your life to examine that that sense experiences and, and sensations of the body give rise to, to feelings and that feelings give rise to mental states and the uh, you know the fourth contemplation there is the contemplation of, of dhammas. Dhammas are the, the phenomena that we experience and that is really that is really mental. So that fourth contemplation is really about investigating the uh, dependently originated uh, mind-created nature of the reality that we find ourselves in. Because one meaning of Dhamma is reality. And the reality that we find ourselves in is this mind-created, dependently originated uh, reality. So, so this, this is, Sutra is a wonderful practice, but I, it's a practice to learn to apply all of the time in every part of your life. So I'm absolutely in favor of that. But the specific practices on the 32 parts of the body and the decomposition of the body and things like this are only especially useful if you are someone who has a lot of natural attachment to the body. The rest of them are really good. The rest of them can lead you right to the stage of being in our heart. The value of observing the elements is to, it's, it's the same thing, to understand that the body is, uh, is a composite, that the body is not separate than everything else. It's, the, all, all of the material world, everything that is formed, it consists of these four elements. And so doing the meditation on the uh, body as the four elements, is an, it, it is a good way to come to that place of recognizing that your body is just a part of the world. It's just another manifestation of the same four elements and is not separate and distinct from them. Uh, and that, you know, that has value because the more that you're able to realize that this body is not really separate from the world, it's just a part of the world, then later on, as your practice matures more and you realize that, that there is nothing about any of the five aggregates that is really separate uh, and distinct from everything else, that, that Everything is the same unity, the same oneness. So it, uh, it can be good in that way as well. But in terms of the amount of time that a person has to practice, uh, some of these contemplations of the body, if you, know, if you have a limited amount of time to practice, 
you're far better off uh, doing the samatha and vipassana practices than to spend many, many hours contemplating the 32 parts of the body or things like that. How about the other three? The other three we should practice uh, as uh, we should practice in our meditation. The feelings of the yeah, mental yeah, state? Yeah. Always, yes. In meditation and out of meditation. While you're meditating, you experience feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And part of, part of practicing mindful awareness when meditating, part of introspective awareness, is realizing the experiences you have of pleasantness and unpleasantness, associated uh, in, of both the mental and the physical kind associated with your practice. Um, we, we feel satisfied when our mind stays on the meditation object. And that is a pleasure that is originating in the mind. You know, and it's a satisfaction of an accomplishment. Mental states. We experience many kinds of mental states during meditation. You experience the satisfaction I just mentioned. You also experience restlessness. You, you experience impatience. Uh, you'll experience uh, craving, uh, desire, uh, you know, be aware of these mental states when they're coming up, when you're meditating, rather than it's just you're, you're ignoring everything in favor of just developing single-pointedness. It's also about, uh, about learning about your mind. And uh, you learn about your mind by what's happening in the present moment. So when you're sitting and meditating, everything that happens is uh, a legitimate thing for you to be mindfully aware of. The hindrances, you know, if we look at the, the uh, fourth of these contemplations, you see that the five aggregates and the five hindrances, those are the first two of the, uh, of the fourth uh, part of the contemplation. And this is very much a part of your meditation practice, that when you're sitting there and there's a sound, that's a sensation and there arises in the mind a perception, and that's associated with a, a feeling and uh, there's consciousness of it. Just noticing, noticing the five aggregates as they make themselves evident while you meditate and then you bring your attention back to the sensations of the breath. And you notice sometimes there's perception of, of breath in relation to that and sometimes there's just the sensations and there's the feelings associated with that. And Consciousness is what you're dealing with continuously. Conscious awareness, you're changing the focus of consciousness. You're shifting uh, the, the breadth uh, of uh, awareness that's associated with consciousness. You are experiencing uh, one kind of consciousness arising and another kind of consciousness passing away. So you're doing that contemplation while you're meditating. And then, of course, the, hind the five hindrances <coughs> Uh, when you have distractions, the thoughts that come up, uh, the first hindrance is sensual desire. And some of the thoughts that come up are thoughts related to worldly desire, the sense desire. Other thoughts that come up are related to ill will, your annoyances or uh, things that have happened or your memory of a, a recollection of an argument you had with somebody. I mean, these are the kind of thoughts that come up as distractions. So. They, uh, 
the hindrances of sensual desire, worldly desire, and ill will are a major part of the distractions and the mind wandering we experience when we meditate. When we experience resistance to practice, uh, when we this wish to procrastinate, this temptation to think about some interesting thought that's come up, rather than returning our attention to the sensation of the breath. This is the hindrance of sloth and torpor, or I don't really like the term sloth and torpor. I prefer that we call it resistance and procrastination because that, that's a better description of what we're experiencing. But uh, resistance and procrastination are present within us as hindrances in our meditation, and we directly experience them and recognize them, recognizing them for what they are. You know, uh, this, this is the contemplation of the dhammas in the dhamma. When the dhamma of procrastination arises, you recognize it for what it is before you set it aside and direct your attention uh, to, uh, to the meditation object. The same thing in your meditation, you will experience the hindrances of agitation that are due to worry and remorse. You'll find your mind is agitated and uh, it will become apparent after a while where is this agitation coming from? I have agitation because of worries. I have agitation because of regrets. Likewise, uh, the hindrance of doubt arises in your meditation practice. So, recognizing what it is and recognizing that the antidote to it is to deepen the practice because it is the fruits of the practice that will ultimately overcome doubt. So, we could continue on and go through the other uh, aspects of, of this fourth contemplation from the Satipatthana Sutra, but you'll see that they're all present in the meditation the sense organs and the sense object and the sense consciousnesses, and then the, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths. You experience, we've already talked about this a lot, but you experience dissatisfaction or you experience pleasure and you experience the craving in your meditation to re-experience the pleasure or the bliss. And we become attached to it, you know, and we see it arising and we see it passing away. We experience the dissatisfaction and the impatience the physical discomfort, the desire for the bell to ring so that we can go do something better. They're all there. And so absolutely, these, uh, the Satipatthana is, is there to be practiced in every part of your meditation. But I think, I, I think that uh, the most important of these four applications is in our daily life in the world. Still continue to meditation. Still continue to sit. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. Because 
Well, I'm not sure. Okay, like um, for example, if I practice like two hours every yeah. day on sitting meditation, mm -hmm. but I find out like maybe a month, I'm still on the um, step one or something, mm -hmm. uh, just continue. Uh, continue to practice, yes, but if you find that you uh, if you find that you aren't making very recognizable progress, then you need to you need to talk to someone because there's probably something that you're not doing correctly. You see, there are a lot of people that meditate for a long time and they don't make any progress. And that's very unfortunate. I, I, I really like to see that change because that only happens, there is some, some mistake in the way that you're approaching the meditation when that happens. That's the only reason for you to stay stuck in one place for a long period of time is that, is that something, you're not approaching something correctly, you're not doing something correctly. Well, can you give a specific time, like um, how many hours or how many days if you invest in no, there is, there's a, there's a variability from one person to another, you know. I can never say to somebody, this is how long it's going to take you to get to step four, and this is how long it's going to take you to get to stage seven. But what I can say is, if you're practicing diligently, if you're practicing every day, and if throughout the period of time that you're sitting there, you're doing your best to follow the instruction, then you should be able to tell that you're, you're getting better, that your skills are getting better. And if it seems like you've been doing this for several weeks and there's no change, then there's something is wrong that needs to be corrected. I, that I can say with absolute certainty. Now, the fact that as a person practices, they, they have success and, and uh, they find that now they're meditating stage four, stage five, and then they find themselves back at stage two again. That's normal. So, uh, but uh, what will happen is you'll move back and forth, but you're always gradually getting, you know, more and more skill and your meditation is improving. And any person who finds that, you know, over several weeks there's no change, then then there, something is causing them to be stuck there. So even your body feel uncomfortable, like you sick or something, you still can do sedimentation or? Yes, if your body's sick, you can still practice. Uh, you may do your sitting meditation actually lying down in bed, but you can still do it. And your mind may be very dull, because often when we're sick, that's one of the effects of it, is your mind is very dull, but that's all right. You meditate with the dullness then. You, you do the practice of trying to overcome the dullness. Or uh, you may have a lot of discomfort in your body. Uh, in that case, you meditate on the discomfort instead of on the breath. But there's nothing to keep you really from practicing. It may be if you're quite ill, you'll practice only for 10 minutes and not for one hour, and that's fine. But you just do what you can, whether it's 10 minutes or half an hour, or sometimes if you're, if you're sick in bed but not too sick, you may find that you're able to practice four or five hours a day instead of one. So, you know, it's <laughs> you, work, you work with what you have. You make the best, take the best opportunity with what you have. 
But if I understand correctly, your first question is, was about if you find that there's no progress. If you find there's no progress, then you have to examine more carefully, uh, or especially to talk to somebody, because it probably means most likely two things. The first one would be that you have misunderstood something. For example, you might be in stage two or three where you're trying to get to the point of not losing the meditation object, but you think that you need to be single-pointed, so you're trying to drive away thoughts, and you're trying to stop all these other sensations and awarenesses. That will keep you stuck there for a long time. You know, if you, if you try to be single-pointed at the same time that you're trying to learn to, free, to overcome mind-wandering, you won't have much luck. The object, I, I say, when, usually when I'm talking about it, I mean the sensations of the breath. But all of the same principles will apply, no matter, if even if you're using a different kind of meditation, the same principles will apply. So the one thing I said was that probably there is some misunderstanding. If somebody is stuck, the other the reason that I see people get stuck is there's some part of the instruction that they don't like or they think they know a better way. And so they're not actually following the instruction. They're doing something different. And that will result in a person being stuck as well. So. Yes? Um, earlier, you said the five aggregates, including the bodies, um, have no separation in the world. But uh, yesterday, you said that everybody's uh, perception is unique. Um, if, I, if we look at an app, That's right. Everyone's, everyone's perspective and everyone's perception is unique, but it is interconnected in so many, so many different ways. Um, we, the entire contents of the mind are the result of the interaction with the world through the senses. And so the, the world we live in has played a role in creating the mental formations, uh, creating the predispositions to certain kinds of perception. So the perception that each of us has may be different one from the other, but they're all uh, interconnected. The, the interconnectedness, each of us is a part of the interconnected whole and so therefore our unique perceptions are still dependent upon and determined by that whole that we're interconnected with. Um, the other thing is that we might imagine a human being that was born alone on a desert island. Don't know how they get through childhood, but anyway, imagine that their whole concept of the world is created only by themselves. But this is not what happens with us. Uh, our understanding of the world isn't the result only of our sensory experiences. For the first few years, we build an understanding of the world almost entirely through our own sensory experiences. But at some point, we reach a stage 
where now we are learning and creating an image of the world, of the universe, that is based on other people's experiences. They're teaching us because we're human beings and we learn from each other. And most of what we learn uh, is, is coming, uh, has nothing to do with our own experiences. You know about all kinds of things that you have never experienced. And so, uh, in that regard, your mental formations uh, are, to a large extent, uh, determined by the mental formations of other people that you're in contact with. And likewise, your mental formations, when you communicate and express, are altering the mental formations of other people. So, although each of us has our own set of mental formations, they're all affecting each other. They're all interconnected. What's left? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, in, in China, uh, you know, people like to keep uh, secrets. Uh, like, you know, if you know, like, like really good kung fu, you don't want to teach anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you only want to teach your son. Well, yeah. well that means it's not really interconnected. <laughs> Well, you, you, to try to keep secrets is to limit the interconnection to some degree. But uh, if we go to an even deeper level, we'll find there's, there's, there's far more interconnectedness there. Um, oh, like, like how, how, how this, this secret gets, get, gets arrived at its conclusion is based on a lot of understanding from... Uh, other people to oh, that's right. Eyes. And two very secretive kung fu masters on opposite parts of China can discover the same thing from the same information, and that information may be common to everyone. The only difference is they put it together in a particular way. But because it's common to everyone, even though they had no contact with each other, they can still come to the same secret truth, right? separated. We are much more interconnected uh, than uh, we realize. And if, but we can't realize that we are interconnected if we just reflect on it. But, you know, we, uh, a group of people that associates with each other has a very strong influence on each other. And of course, whole, whole societies and whole cultures develop very, sim very similar ways of viewing and understanding things because they are sharing their own mental formations in that way.
Yeah. Well, you, you seem to be um, using the word separate in the sense of independent. Yeah. We're not independent. We are not independent. And I certainly understand that we're not independent. Right. But separate, I'm looking for more uh, like ammunition about how to convince me that I'm really not separate. I mean, I understand the concept of it, but still kind of feel separate. So, so can't you be interdependent but still separate? You can. We can be interdependent, and our minds can contrive boundaries to identify separateness. But the question is, do those boundaries really exist from their own side, or are they merely projections of the mind? In the physical. This, let's just stay in the realm of relative reality okay. and the physical body. And our skin seems to be a really obvious boundary that makes us separate. Yeah. But if we examine that, uh, what we see, um, although from, from here, looks to me like your skin forms a definite boundary. But if I examine it close enough, there's bits of your skin falling off and there's bits of the environment attached to it. And so uh, at least it's, it's a very complicated boundary because I have to weave my way through all this, you know, okay, am I gonna count this bit of uh, dirt? Now that, that's not Neil, but these, cell, these skin cells are Neil, but well, these skin cells are dead and they just haven't fallen off yet. So they're not Neil. And, you know, so it's a fuzzy boundary right away at the beginning of it. But then we think about all of the atoms and molecules that make up your body are constantly leaving and being replaced. You know? uh, and so uh, the boundary gets fuzzier there. You know, they, the, Also, there's another sense in which we, th we think that, uh, uh, okay, my, my body is a separate entity, but I, here I am in this world, and my body is surrounded by air. And say, okay, my body is separate from the atmosphere that surrounds it. Uh, do you know what would happen if we remove that atmosphere? It, you would explode. because. It's actually the atmosphere that's holding everything together. So, so okay, you know uh, that's another fuzzy boundary, isn't it? You know, uh, it's, uh, the uh, in every, every single one of us, there uh, is breathing the air that each other has breathed. You know, it's constantly mixing. The most interesting thing is, do you know that uh, there are thousands of atoms in your body that were in the Buddha's body at one time? And that's true of every single person on Earth. Because atoms are so small, and there's so many of them, that 
uh, and they get spread around and mixed up together, that there's nobody on this planet probably who doesn't have at least several thousand atoms from the Buddha's original body. So that means we have several thousand from everybody that's alive today. That's exactly right. Yes, we exactly. So is this is this an ammunition for seeing? Yeah. The other thing too is that even just staying once again with the physical realm, uh, we find scientists find the degree of interconnectedness of everything is goes far beyond what it appears to us. Uh, you may have heard that in the people that study weather that. Uh, uh, the dynamics of complex nonlinear systems say that when a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong, it will affect the weather in London eventually. We are that interconnected. So if on the physical level we are so interconnected, even though it would seem initially that on the physical level we are very, very separate, then we look at the degree of interaction that we have with each other because of the nature of the kind of beings that we are. And, and we might throw into the pot and stir it up with the internet, for example, you know, all the communication there. The influence that we have on each other is vast, vast. And some of it very subtle, some of it very gross. Anyway, lunch is waiting.